If there's anything that Christianity and the church doesn't need, it's controversy and division, right? If there's anything we don't need, it's controversy and division, right? Well, kind of. It's one of those yes-no answers, actually. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, controversy and division, we're told in the New Testament, is a bad thing. The church at Corinth is scolded for controversy and division. Interestingly enough, that's in chapter 12. In chapter 11, we usually think of as the communion chapter. It's actually said that such things are necessary for the church. They're necessary for the church in a sinful world where things aren't perfect. And it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Isn't that interesting? Division, controversy are bad things. We actually don't want them at Omaha Bible Church. And yet, because the world is sinful and broken and Sin doesn't stay outside of the church. There's actually a place and God works everything together for good. And he actually uses controversy and division, as it says, again, to quote the verse, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. It's rather interesting that God actually uses such bad things. It's interesting to look at history, the history of Christianity. And throughout church history, we look back and we see uh, there have been all these different kinds of controversies and these different conflicts. But if you really want to know a certain truth about Jesus and what the Bible teaches about a certain reality, and you look back in history and you'll see that usually uh, out of those kinds of conflicts and battles, because they have to grapple over what does the Bible actually say, there's a lot of light, and you say, wow, this is, this is interesting how God has worked through the controversy, through the division, so that we can understand better. Even think about the books in your Bible like Galatians in the New Testament. Galatians never would have been written. It's a great, great book about the gospel if it weren't for the conflict of that particular church. The church at Galatia, Colossians. The church at Colossae, if it weren't for this major conflict going on about how... Uh, how, how Jesus is supreme ultimately, or he's just one among many, wouldn't have happened. We, we wouldn't know something of the grandeur and the greatness and supremacy of Christ if it weren't for the conflict, if it weren't for the division. And then we look at the life of Jesus. We look at the life of Jesus, and we can see, and we're going to see today in chapter 20, conflict is in the air. He's getting closer and closer to going to the cross and there's all kinds of tension and there's all kinds of problems going on. But what it does is it affords him the opportunity. It allows us to see. It allows his disciples to see. It allows his enemies to see who he really is and who he isn't. And so while conflict and division are bad things, they are, we we live in a world stricken, if you will, by bad, by sin. And so God works in all of that so that we might understand the gospel better, so that we might understand Christ better. And we're going to see that today in Luke chapter 20. So in our pursuit of knowing who Jesus is and having a better understanding of who Jesus is, the real Jesus, not the Jesus of imagination or or revisionist history or something like that, in an effort to see who Jesus really is, we'll look at Luke chapter 20. 
and we'll go as far as we can through the chapter. If we make it all the way through, uh, we'll organize our thoughts. I'll organize my thoughts at least around six answers. Who is Jesus? In the midst of the controversy, we'll be able to, to say, Jesus is, with six different answers. Ready to go? I hope you're ready to go. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Number one, who is Jesus? He's the one with ultimate authority. He's the one with ultimate authority. And in so many ways, it's always about authority. In so many ways, it's so about authority. And we'll see that here. Let's jump right in in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, we know this is a daily practice because of chapter 19, verse 47, just above, daily doing this, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, I wrote in my margin, the authorities, came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Authority comes up twice in our text by name, but in describing who they are, they are the authority. So it comes up multiple times. They're the authorities, and so they're saying to Jesus, who speaks with authority, who gave you the authority? And what has Jesus been doing? He's been preaching the gospel daily. And who's central to the gospel? He's central to the gospel. He's been pointing to himself because he's the fulfillment. He's the savior Messiah, deliverer Messiah, the good news of the coming kingdom. He's the good news of the coming king, which has been coming up in Luke again and again and again. Who, who, who gave you such authority? In a sense, how dare you do this? Everything comes through us. Verse 3 says, He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Hear the crickets? <laughs> okay. Let's keep going. Verse 5. And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, that is to say from God, He will say, Why did you not believe Him? And remember, John the Baptist shows up as the one who would come before Jesus. And what does he preach? He preaches repentance. And he preaches the coming kingdom because the coming king is coming. He's preaching about Jesus. He's saying, you'd better get ready. There better be change going on here because you guys are going down the wrong road. And Messiah King is coming and you say you're waiting for Messiah. Well, th th there, needs, there needs to be some changing going on here because you're not really waiting for him. Even though you say, you're, you say you're waiting for him. Get ready for Jesus. Okay, that's what John was preaching. Why didn't you believe him? That's what he's going to say in verse 5. Making it clear that they didn't. Verse 6 says, But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. Verse 7, so, so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's make sure we see the huge contrast between Jesus and his authority and these religious leaders and their authority. Okay. They claim to speak for God, to represent God, to know God's word best. They're the authorities. They're questioning Jesus' authority, but notice how, how huge of a difference. 
if they really did speak for God, if they, didn't re- if they really did come in that long line uh, of prophetic voices, if you will, here's my question for you, the key question. Would they be afraid of what the general, general population thought? No, read the prophets. Read Jeremiah. If you really have a message from God and you have God's authority, you just preach it and let the chips fall where they may. Read those prophets. They're like crazy people. They, 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 they don't give a rip. I mean, they, they just say, this is what God says. You know? And then everybody wants to kill them. Well, that, that's how the prophets are. And John the Baptist comes as a prophet. And he's, he's, he's another crazy man. Okay? And, and he just locks and loads because, again, this is what God says and you're living in sin and it's hypocrisy because you say you're waiting for Messiah, Messiah's coming, and you're so not waiting for Messiah and he doesn't care to the point where they chop his head off. And Jesus comes and Jesus, again, with that prophetic stance, speaks the truth no matter what and what's going to happen to him. They're going to crucify him. But these who claim to have the authority of God we see, you know, behind the curtain a little bit. They, they so should stand out to us. As, you know, one of these things just doesn't belong here. Yeah, they don't belong in the line of those who actually have authority from God. Because they don't fear God most. They actually fear people and the approval of the people. And the approval of the people is so important to them. Not because the people are so important to them. That's not how it works. When people uh, seek approval so much, it's not because the people are actually the ones who are important to them. They are important to them. Jesus is making it clear that he, he has ultimate authority. Now, mentally, I couldn't help but jump to Matthew chapter 7 on a different account where, where Jesus is teaching and the people, the general populace, uh, uh, they're in awe. Why? Because he's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Because he teaches as one having, anybody know? Authority. He's not quoting Rabbi so-and-so. Who quotes Rabbi so-and-so. Who went to school of the rabbis at such and such a place. Jesus is just teaching the Bible. And it's so clear to them that he's actually just teaching the text. He's got authority actually. That's his. And it's like they've never heard such things before. Matthew 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. So by, in, the, in the midst of the controversy, we learn a better picture of who Jesus is. So thank the Lord for the controversy. We, we understand he really has this authority that's so different from theirs. Now let's move on to the next Who is Jesus? Number two, he's the son. He's the son. And I think it's it's artificial to separate it from what came before, but for the sake of a little bit of a a break, let's call it number two. He's the son. Jesus gives a parable. It's in verses 9 through 16. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. 
And he sent another servant. That is, the owner sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. You see where this is going. Perhaps they will respect him. 14 says, But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. In the, in the Greek New Testament, it's that same statement translated surely not where we see, um, like in Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul says, well, you know, uh, shall sin abound then where there's grace? Should we just sin more if grace is free? And, and he says, may it never be. The strongest way to say absolutely that, that no, it can't be that way. Isn't it interesting that that super forceful, strong, both feet planted objection comes when Jesus tells the parable. Never! Why would they say that? Would they, would they say that because, because if the, uh, that, that, that story doesn't make sense. No. Would they say that because it would be wrong for the landowner to act and to show his wrath against them and to give the land to someone else? No. It seems best to understand it when they say, never! They're saying, that would never be us. God would never look at us like that. We would never treat God like that. How dare you imply that that would be us in this scenario? It's rather fascinating what's happening. Because when you connect the dots, Jesus is saying in the parable that those authorities are the ones who've been entrusted with this, that the owner's been gone for a long time, but when he sends someone, someone is rejected. He sends someone, the someone is rejected. He sends his son, the heir, they kill the heir so it can be theirs. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on here. But it would be very, very offensive. The rulers of Israel, over a long period of time, have had a certain stance against God-sending messengers. Persecution and killing. Persecution and killing. Persecution and killing. That's the track record. And God sends His Son. Jesus is the Son. And they're going to kill Him. That's what they think of God. We'll kill the heir. Jesus is the son. Now there's a lot more to it, I suppose, when we take it in the bigger bigger narrative of things. 
Isn't it, isn't it interesting and isn't it fascinating that the killing of the son doesn't stop the program? And we know that it doesn't stop the program. It definitely doesn't stop the program. That is controversial, though. Jesus is controversial. For him to say, let me me tell you a little story. (laughs) But we learn better about who Jesus is. And we learn better about who these religious leaders are. So we don't have to be enslaved to them. So that these people don't have to be enslaved to them. Something good is coming out of this controversy. Let's move on to number three. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the chief cornerstone. We see in verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? And before we keep reading, he's going to quote their text, okay? It's not really their text, but you know what I mean. He's going to quote their, their text that they would claim. And, and he's saying, well, what, 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 then, what then is this, is, is this that is written? In, in other words, maybe in the way we would say things, I'm not making this up. What you're going to even do to the Son? I, I, I'm following the script. So again in verse 17, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Quoting Psalm 118, I think it's verse 22. It was quoted last time in chapter 19 also. Psalm 118 is is a national song, a national psalm of comfort. Israel would love the psalm. This This is... about belonging to God and God providing and God's coming kingdom and, and we will learn this and we will sing this and, and we, we will love this song. But, but Jesus, you know, has to, you know, blow off maybe the dusty part that they hadn't really paid attention to and, and do notice that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Do, do know that I, I, I'm part of the script. And, and, and being rejected, I'm part of the script. You might not like the side you're playing on and what that means for you, but at least notice that. What's unfolding? How about this? My rejection, which is part of what's unfolding in the killing of the sun, isn't plan B, and it isn't a sign of everything gone wrong. Yes, it's wrong what's going to happen. It's sinful to crucify the Son. But it, but it is part of the plan. Even, and he's showing them, even in your text. I mean, to, to, to uh, kind of offhandedly uh, say what we say today in sort of a ridiculous way, Um, Jesus can open up Psalm 118, verse 22, and say, so what does the verse mean to you? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Jesus doesn't really care what it means to them. Um, I'm saying it in that sense because it should be so obvious that this is part of the plan. They they just haven't been paying attention. We we all read selectively. We pay attention selectively. 
Verse 18 says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. They're the authorities. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Referenced again to Christ, to Jesus in 1 Peter and Acts chapter 2. Making the simple point, what you do with Jesus... in so many ways, is the most important thing about you. He's the chief cornerstone. That's where you find rescue and security. But if you reject Him, it's condemnation and judgment. He's everything. Protection or condemnation. What they do with Jesus will determine good or bad for them. It would be true for anyone. This isn't just quoted by Jesus in his day. It ends up being quoted with, by the followers of Jesus after him, as I already mentioned in First Peter and in Acts 2. It's true in 21st century America. You stumble over him or you embrace him. Let's move on to number four. Who is Jesus? The controversy allows us to give another answer. He's the master teacher. He's the master theologian. He's the master at understanding God and God's world. And there's a couple of great illustrations. A couple of awesome illustrations. So Jesus is going to break the rule that says don't talk about you know, religion and politics. Uh, he's going to talk about both. We say don't talk about them because they're controversial. Jesus talks about them because they're controversial because it allows everyone to see the right way to understand religion and politics <laughs> and the right way to understand Him. It's fascinating. I mean, this, if, if no other text makes you want to say, I, I, I think I'll be on His side. Um, I don't know what other text would. So the first illustration, verse 19, the scribes, and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, not like at a charismatic kind of church service. Um, they want to kill him. Sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. They're mad, right? Right then and there, they want to kill him. For, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. The bright group, huh? <laughs> very intuitive, very, very perceptive. But they feared the people. Again, it, it, even though Luke doesn't come out and say it, if you know anything about Old Testament history, you go, those guys don't really represent God then. I mean, if anything, those, the prophets, we would want to say, needed to have some like, you know, um, I don't know what kind of classes do you take where you get along with people better, but at least some social skills kinds of classes. Uh, let, let's move on to number 20, verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Governor, That would be to Pilate. Let's handle him that way. Verse 21, So they asked him, Teacher, Rabbi, 
We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. You know, okay, no, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Super, super controversial. Why would, it, why would it be controversial? It's controversial because Jesus is a Jew. He's engaging Jewish people. They're ruled by the Romans and they don't like it. But there's got to be some peace here. If he comes out swinging against Rome, he's against the government, and all you have to do is quick go tell the government, and they'll put him down as an insurrectionist. And so there, there's that tight wire side of it to walk. But then the other side of it would be, you know what? The Jews don't like the fact that the Romans are ruling over them. Romans with their paganism. Caesar is God. Again, you, you, you go to Israel today, and you, you can see... Still archaeological digs and you can see altars where you would offer animal sacrifices to Caesar right there on the Mediterranean Sea. At Caesarea. Caesarea. Yeah. You worship the guy. And so this is, this is a theologically tricky question. What are you going to do? Religion and politics. So good that this happened. Good controversy. Verse 23, But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Show me the most basic coin of the day, uh, worth roughly a day's wages, we're told. Coin that they would have used all the time. So somebody reach in your pocket or wherever you would, your man purse, um, or wherever you would, um, show me, get, get in your purse and... Uh, Give me a denarius. We need some levity along the way, right? Um, and then he says in verse 24, Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. It's Caesar's coin has Caesar's face on it. It's Caesar's money. Now maybe an interesting historical note that you might find interesting, helpful. Jews who did not put Jews who did not put images on coins, especially images that represented deity, a la Exodus twenty, use these coins daily. For example, listen to this um, description of a coin the inscription on a silver tiberius tiberian denarius reads quote tiberius caesar augustus son of divine augustus you don't like that if you're a jew with his image on it on the reverse side his mother livia is portrayed as an incarnation of the goddess of peace along with the inscription high priest That's what makes this so controversial. It's right in your Jewish heart to not like this. Image of a false god and goddess. It's bad, bad, bad. But Jesus says, whose face is on it? 
Caesar's? Okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Must have been a good answer because look at verse 26. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. You know? Why didn't we think of that? You know, why don't we teach that, teach that in Shabbat school? And it's also important to know, they, they used this money all the time and didn't have a problem using the money. Their Old Testament, and they would have known the Old Testament certainly better than the best of us, it seems, at least in data, clearly taught and expressed that God is the God of all, He's in charge, He's the Creator, sovereign over all, He should give, be given all glory and all honor, but in this broken, fallen world, God does and has established human government. Their Bibles had Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, He changes times and seasons, He removes kings and sets up kings. Even in a context where you have pagan kings. Yes, it's all God's, but in a broken world, to manage the brokenness, God does establish human rulers, works in and through them. And we know they're not perfect because it's a sinful world. So Jesus' answer is not some kind of weaselly answer that he's trying to get out of something. It's a biblical Old Testament worldview answer. God's in charge. Everything should be given to honor God. But you know what? God establishes rulers, even fallen pagan rulers. And if you're under a fallen pagan ruler, you guys all have Daniel in your Bibles. There's a way to function. There's a way to act. Their Bibles taught that God used Pharaoh, even an ungodly ruler, to accomplish a greater purpose. It's fascinating. And then he gives another illustration. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees. Those who deny that there is a resurrection. Okay, so if you're a Sadducee, who don't you like, theologically? You don't like the Pharisees. If you're a Pharisee, let's start there. If you're a Pharisee, who don't you like? You don't like Sadducees. You really don't like Sadducees. They're, uh, on certain levels, they're, they're the rationalists. On certain levels, they're anti-supernaturalists. Sadducees are known for denying the resurrection and denying the existence of angels. Okay? So the Sadducees come up. The, the theological liberals. Um, I'll, I won't say any more about that. I won't unduly offend beyond that. In name denominations. Uh, okay. Verse 28. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses. And if there's anyone they did say they liked, they liked Moses, okay? After all, he teaches timeless moral principles from law, right? Anyway, never mind. Let's keep going. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. Here comes the riddle. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Verse 32, afterward the woman also died. Verse 33, in the resurrection, 
which they don't believe. Okay? In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Oh, I hadn't thought about that before. Well, we're going to see that Jesus is the master theologian, master teacher. Verse 34, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, so now we have a heavenly age, the age that is here and now, versus a coming age, Jesus is drawing a a distinction between the two, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels. (laughs) Just be sure to stick your finger right in their eye because they don't believe in angels. But just to make his point, and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Simple thing. The age that is now is not like the age that is to come. There is no theological conundrum whatsoever. And even though you've been discipling your children with this stupid illustration for who knows how long, right? It doesn't work doesn't work at all. What's more, verse 37 says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. You want to quote Moses? Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. I mean, maybe right here, I mean, I would, be, I would have a tendency to, you know, to, to drop the, the ultimate Old Testament resurrection text and, and quote Daniel chapter 12 and just say, slam dunk, cross-reference. Jesus is, Jesus could have done that, but he just says, okay, you want to talk about Moses? We'll, we'll, we'll do it, we'll get there through Moses. Back to 37. Where he, Moses, passage about the burning bush, Exodus 3 and 4, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well. Again, remember, they don't like the Sadducees. You know, now they like Jesus. Hey, did somebody get that down? (laughs) Somebody get that? That's a pretty good way of dealing with those guys. Add that to the list of proof texts. Daniel 12 was good, but you can actually even just use their text. You've spoken well. Verse 40 for they no longer dared to ask him any question. It's good, huh? Speaking of cross-referencing, again, I cross-reference in my mind of, of, this, of Jesus dealing with the Sadducees. I mean, in a, sense, in a certain sense, of, of all most to be hated. Because they say they believe the Bible is true, and yet they just make it mean all these kind of goofy things like theological liberals do. They, they, they take the name, but they redefine it. Here is Jesus, according to John chapter 11, who is the resurrection. And they're trying to pick a fight with him about resurrection and proving that it doesn't exist. It's like them standing there toe-to-toe with Jesus trying to prove that he doesn't exist, even though they're standing there toe-to-toe with him. Which is the insanity of theological liberalism. 
Don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe. Number five, who is Jesus? He's the greater David. He's the greater David. We can do this one in the last two rather quickly. Verse 41, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? You have a question for me? I have a question for you. Verse 42, for David himself says, in the book of Psalms, this is Psalm 110. And there's a good reason why it's quoted in the New Testament a lot. The Lord, okay, follow here. It's not that hard, but it is if you're not paying attention. Verse 42, the Lord said to my Lord, this is Psalm 110, Psalm of David. Psalm of David, and David writes, the Lord, okay, God the Father, the Lord said to my Lord, but David is the king. There, there, there's a new Lord category in here. The Lord said to my Lord. David says, my Lord? Okay, let's keep reading. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 44, David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? This doesn't make any sense. Try saying that to these Jews who love Psalm 110, Davidic Psalm. Your Psalm doesn't make any sense. How could David say to the Lord, My Lord? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever unless there is an ultimate ruling, reigning Messiah, King, and we're learning that His name is Jesus. There's only one way this makes sense. And they considered David the greatest. And in, in many ways, he sh- they should have. But he's not the, the ultimate greatest. He's in, in anticipation of a greater one who would rule and reign forever. I love this text showing Jesus is the greater David. I love it because it's not a New Testament text. New Testament uses, uses it all the time. But, but it's important to see that this, this is not a, a, Christianity is not a religion where we, we just made up a bunch of other stuff and somehow look for proof text somewhere. Even inherent in the text itself, even though there's progressive revelation and things get clearer and, and as we move forward, it's, it is there. It might be in small form because it's in anticipation as the historical drama unfolds. But it's really there. There's a great reason why the author of Hebrews really settles in on Psalm 110 because he's connecting the dots and showing that this is, this is a natural connection, not an artificial superimposing, reinserting. He's the greater David. Psalm 110 doesn't make sense if there isn't a Jesus. Finally, number six. Who is Jesus? He's the good shepherd judge. He's the good shepherd judge. Verse 45. And in hearing all the people, not cowardly, not behind some sort of closed doors, and in hearing all the people, in the hearing of all the people, sorry, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes, who like, a, like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts 
who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. I'm titling Jesus the Good Shepherd Judge. He's the Good Shepherd. He cares about those who belong to Him. He cares about the believers. He cares about them so much to issue a formal warning and say, Beware. Beware of them. And then He pronounces condemnation upon them. They look good on the outside. In fact, they like to make sure you know they look good on the outside. With holy hardware, right? All outfitted in deluxe. With special names, special public names. They're not like everybody else. They have unique special clothes, unique special names. We reserve unique special places for them. Jesus says, beware of them? What? They're the ones we trust. Jesus says, beware of those you trust. Because you know what they really do? They really, under the guise of God, right? What they really do is they take advantage of, of all people, the people that shouldn't be taken advantage of. When he names the widows, the, 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 those who have needs and who are weak and should be taken care of, they might even pretend like they take care of them, but what they actually do is, yeah, they take care of them, all right. And again, how would we know this about Jesus and therefore know this about false teachers if it weren't for this conflict that's raging and this tension that's raging and Jesus caringly, compassionately, boldly, strongly, confrontationally in front of them says, they're the ones, watch out for them. They're not only facing condemnation. Did you notice that at the end of verse 47? They're going to receive a greater condemnation. I want to end with um, a quotation from a religious leader. You can tell me what you think. And then we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. According to one leader of religion. I'm told uh, this person is a best-selling author. They're no longer alive, but they founded a, a church and they founded an entire religious movement, movement that calls itself Christian. Um, the writer writes, we are not called upon to enter into controversy with those who hold fa- false theories. Controversy is unprofitable. Christ never entered into it. Jesus entered into controversy every time he could and when it was best for the benefit of his people. Not just to pick a fight. He would always win, by the way. But because he loves sinners and because he's a gracious Savior and because he really and truly wanted and wants us to know who he really is. And we really wouldn't know who he is if it weren't for him setting the record straight. 
And so even now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and he says, do this in remembrance of me. That's been a whole nother controversy. Who is Jesus? Well, today we've learned a little bit better about who Jesus is. Jesus is, is the great eternal one. The eternal son who became one of us. He humbled himself. He came into our world so he could represent us perfectly because our first representative, Adam, didn't. And when Jesus was here, he did everything exactly right. So that everyone who trusts in him, not in themselves or in their religion, everyone who trusts in him can know this for sure. That God accepts you. Not because you're acceptable, not because we've made you acceptable, but because God accepts His Son who represents everyone who would ever believe in Him. Jesus then voluntarily went to the cross, having done everything right. He voluntarily experienced the judgment that we would deserve for being against God, because we all are naturally. And He atoned for our rebellion so that we might be forgiven perfectly. And then He rose again from the dead. Promising that everyone who trusts in Him too would be raised from the dead and live everlastingly. New creation. That's who Jesus is. We know that better because of controversy. So do this in remembrance of me. This is a time for no self-confidence, no guilt, no worry. But a time to rest and to give God thanks that He's provided perfect reconciliation in His Son, Jesus. It's a time of worship. And so we're going to eat together and drink together. It's very simple. But it's about the most important, most profound thing ever. And we'll do it in remembrance of Him. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for a great morning at Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for the controversy. Lord, help us not in our sinfulness to be the the agents of controversy. But help us to be the the right kinds of responders to it. Where lies are told and error is promoted, indeed, we, we need to be used by you and step up to the plate and even do so with the example of Jesus. But we're very thankful for the way you've worked in history. We're very thankful for the way you worked in the life of your son Jesus when he was here on earth. Time and time again, he lovingly, boldly, profoundly sets the record straight about who he really is. And we're thankful for this because we are prone to wonder. We're prone to drift. We're prone to believing and promoting things that aren't true. So thank you for your word and for your spirit, for your son, for your grace, for your patience. And now as we eat in remembrance of your great son, Jesus, may it be a great act of worship because he's great and because he's worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.